Oh, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here. So, between now and Easter, we're addressing a big question. The whole big, why on earth am I here question. What's the meaning of life question. So, we're going to do a short version of that answer today. But the longer version, we're going to take between now and Easter. We're going to do the 40 Days of Purpose. So, Rick Warren has the book. And we're going to read every day. We can buy the books today after it's uh, a book and a booklet we fill out when we watch the video. We read the book on our own, fill out the booklet with our, our small group, and then we'll be talking about it on Sunday. We'll do this for uh, six weeks starting this coming week. Take us all the way to Easter. should be great. Come to as many of the small groups as you can. Some of us will get to come to all of them, and some of us work schedules and other things. We'll come to as many as we can. But our grand idea was to have them in homes and have them on different nights. And all of that went out the window because Friday night is what most people could do. So we tried to come up with Thursday, Friday, Saturday schedule, and uh, that didn't work. It all became Friday. And then one of the homes had 20 kids that was going to be there. Another home had 10 kids, and I think you can see the problem with that. So now Friday night is going to be just fun at church, and then uh, we'll watch the video together, and then we'll break up into the various small groups, and the kids can be uh, effectively corralled, managed. Those seems like negative words. Cared for, cared for back behind the locked door. So we appreciate that. So Friday will be most of them. There's a Wednesday afternoon women's group. Um, there, there's probably going to be a Tuesday night men's group. There might be one on Sunday, but I don't, I don't think we have to do that. We'll see. So all of that is great, and we can get our books after. Right after church, we'll go out. Normally we do a conversation, but we're going to set up for the Super Bowl. They made diagrams for us. So we'll set up the tables. We'll get it all ready, and then uh, 4 o'clock. We've been saying 3 o'clock, but 4 o'clock, come back, and we'll do chili cook-off. We'll do a, a board games for most of us, and, and then the Super Bowl will be on in a couple of rooms for those who want that. All right, so this question, why on, what on earth am I here for? What's the meaning of life? So if the, here's a fair question. If, if you've really pondered, you've probably asked this question. If, if heaven is so much better for us, why does an all-loving God leave us here? If it's a staging area, once we get to Jesus, we're going to do baptism April 21st. We'll do the horse trough up here. It'll be a party. It'll be great. But Martin Luther, if you have ever heard of the Lutheran church, Martin Luther, 600 years ago, we don't really think of theologians, people who write about God as being funny, but Martin Luther said when we baptize someone, if we really love them, they've accepted Jesus, we would just hold them under because, you know, it'd be a little bit of thrashing there for, what, 20 seconds? And then they get to go right to the arms of Jesus. If we really love people, why don't we just hold them under? This could actually, now that I say that out loud, cut down on sign up for baptism Sunday. But we don't do that. And you get to pick who baptizes you. So we're going to address that with a thorough understanding between now and Easter. But I'll, I'll give you the shorter version. But it starts with this. So this a, a, a minister told me this story years ago. It goes back to the 1960s. Standard Oil. John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil, got broken up into Exxon and all kinds of Chevron and all kinds of different things. But one of their slogans back in the 1960s was, as you travel, ask us. So this guy, Bill Mallory, had a question. What's the meaning of life? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing? He was in Chicago. So you can picture the terrible attitude. Back me up, Jeff. The, the terrible attitude of people in Chicago. And uh, 
So he goes on this quest, 1960. So first he goes and finds his Maharishi, and that was unsatisfying, this guru over far, far away. So then he comes back to Chicago, still has this question, and he stops at Standard Oil. And he sees their advertising slogan. Let's bring this up. There you go. As you travel, ask us. Yeah. And so I don't know if you know this about me, but in college, I was one of a, the last of a breed. I pumped gas at a full-service gas station. That's how old I am. Right across the road, gas was 50% cheaper. And my boss had a whole fleet of us who were pumping gas because here's how it worked. Full-service gas. You'd pull in, you'd pay 50% more, but I'd come out and I would say, how can I help you? And they would say, fill her up. If you did a fill-up, you got a free car wash. Or they would say, give me $2. And then while the gas was pumping, I would say, do you want me to clean your windshield? I'm a professional windshield cleanist to this day. I don't pump, I don't fill up the car with gas without making sure the windshield is good. So clean the windshield if you want. I'd check the oil, and I would check the tire pressure, and about 10, 20% of the people would uh, be all excited and have me vacuum out their car. They were right there. They were attached. I would vacuum out, vacuum out the car. It, well, don't, don't give this one away yet, Jackson. Go back, go back to the other one. So I'd be doing all of that for 50% more, and, uh, and there was a garage attached, but uh, while, while my, during my tenure, the mechanic went from really great to strung out on drugs, and then it got weird. So they closed that part down. But you still got all the rest of the service, and it was very popular, especially when it was raining. That's when there were lined people, and they would come in and say, put in $2. Okay, and I would still do the rest, although we'd skip the vacuum cleaner because uh, back then, 40 years ago, you could get electrocuted. So you got everything else. So Bill Mallory would pull up to Standard Oil and ask the question, what am I here for? And I can just picture this guy, because when you weren't filling up cars, you were in there repairing tires, the old tire machines that on occasion would explode and kill people. I know how to run one of those. So you're working the tire machine. The, the, somebody goes over the black hose, the air hose, and ding. And so you wipe your hands, you walk out. How can I help you? And Bill Mallory said to the guy, well, fill her up, and I have a question. What on earth are we here for? What's the meaning of life? And he got some reactions. The first guy said, well, I don't know about you, but I work here. Which is a great answer to what are we here for? Well, because I'm getting paid. That's a good reason. And then another person said, oh, I'm sorry, I can only answer what's on the map. Because the brilliance of As You Travel, Ask Us, is it sets you up as the expert. So one, you get gas. Two, if you have any kind of car trouble. Well, I've got this knock, right? We'll pull it right in to the bay and we'll check that out right? Set, get set up. I, I think my tires are, are my tires okay? So it sets you up as the expert for everyone traveling concerned about their car. Also, gas stations used to make a fortune. You look around, the older among us know this, gas stations made a, a fortune selling paper what? Maps. You would, uh, I remember I was going off to college, and I put it out on the hood of the car. My dad and I planned my route like, we were, like it was the invasion of Stalingrad. What we got to do is paper maps. That's what, that's what they were trying to sell you, was all the services and the paper map to get you to your destination. When you travel, if you have questions, ask us. And so he pulls in and says, what's the meaning of life? Well, I can only answer what's on the map. 
And then one guy says, well, there's an eight, or there wasn't an 800 number back then. There was a corporate number, an address for customer relations. And so, so, he, uh, so he writes his question that I've been asking, and they write back and say, oh, I'm sorry that you haven't been getting a satisfactory answer to your question. And then in the envelope was one of these. It's a credit card application. That was their answer to the meaning of life. And it seems right, doesn't it? Because we talk about all the time that Jesus said, we'll cover it just in a minute. Bring it up here, Jackson. We'll cover it right now. He said, the whole purpose of life is to love God and love others. So a big part, so it means relationships, right? Rhymes with our, uh, it starts with our rhymes with relationships. But we are supposed to be here. God gives us a gift so that we can develop that gift. We can solve problems for other people, get paid in return. That's how God sets life up. To love God and love others is what it comes down to. They asked Jesus, what's the point of life? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God. Okay. Do we get it perfectly? No. That's why we need Jesus. But that's the first commandment. And then Jesus said, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then, the Bible has a lot of words, Jesus said, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love God, love others. Love God by loving others. Love others by serving them with your God-given gift. We get meaning and money, and they get their problem solved. So it's not completely wrong that Standard Oil would send the poor guy a credit card application because that's what they offer. Well, if your tires were okay and we checked your oil and we cleaned your windshield and we filled you up with gas and we gave you a map and your car's running fine... About the only other thing we can do is give you plastic so that you can cover it in the future. We don't have anything else. We are supposed to solve problems for God's other children. That's part of loving God and loving each other. That is the entire, uh, uh, the whole point of the Bible, Jesus said. That's uh, the Bible in two actions. And we are going to cover one verse between now and and going to set up for the Super Bowl, a, a famous verse. When I went out and I pumped their gas and then they paid, I didn't take their money. We traded, right? I traded my time and back then my ability to kneel down into an old back of an old car and vacuum it out without any of those noises. I could uh, fix their tire. I could air up their tire, I could do all the things necessary to get them on their way. And in exchange for certificates of appreciation that I used to pay for going to college. So I didn't take their money. We made a trade. That's a big part of, of how life worked for their cleaner, well-maintained car now going on to their next destination. That was the extent of the relationship that we needed at that time. So how did I love someone else? By giving them service, and they paid me with cash. It's a, it's a big idea that the point of life is to love God and love others, and we can gloss over it, and we can think that loving someone is always being kind, but think of the number of people in your life who loved you by not being kind, but by being clear. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was your dad. Maybe it was someone who was pointing out how life really works, and you need to level it up 
maybe as your spouse, it's not always loving someone is that we are being um, nice. Sometimes being nice isn't being loving because we can see disaster right ahead and we need to have someone understand, hey, you're headed down the wrong path. So to love someone and to love God, these are, these are big concepts. So this verse, this verse, the Apostle Paul wrote this verse. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So here's the thing. Not everything is good. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life. But if you read this verse quickly, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of. And we can read it fast and say, if it's not good, then clearly God doesn't exist. We can be mad at God because things aren't good. And that's not what it says at all. Not everything is good. Jesus ended up dead on a Roman cross. And now look, what book of the Bible is this? 828, that word is Romans. Jesus ended up dead on a Roman cross. The Apostle Paul is writing this to this little band of Christians in the city of Rome. They're not popular. They're not well-known. The more well-known they get, the more of a threat they are considered. There weren't many of them following this Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem named Jesus, but they were faithful. And now there are billions of Christians since that time till now. Currently in the world, there's billions and, uh, and kind of one of the jokes of all time is the Pope lives in Rome rent-free, right in great. Have you ever been there? He's got a really nice gig. He's got a good amount of property. It's a really good location. And the Pope is there rent-free. God wins. The Roman Colosseum and Circus Maximus, where the Christians were persecuted, were killed for sport. Circus Maximus, if you've ever been there, it's just grass between two busy roads and the Colosseum is one of the most famous ruins in the world still standing. The point is, the Romans killed Jesus, but Jesus didn't stay dead. So bad things still happen to us. But it's not the end of the story. This big concept that God is at work, knitting together all of the good and the tragedies of our life. C.S. Lewis said, from heaven, we look back and the light of heaven floods over all of our life and we see how it connects and how it ends up there and how it ends up good. And we, we see our life in a whole different perspective. The point is, not everything is good, but it's not the end of the story. So to embrace the life we are given by God, to live it as an adventure. Does everything always go right in an adventure? Some of you are really competitive and you've got chili in the in in the game today, and it's going to kind of bum you out when you don't win. I, uh, I think there are four spoons for first, second, third, and fourth place for chili. It wouldn't it be a disappointment if there's five chilies entered. It's like one person didn't get, uh, we couldn't create one more spoon. Go get a plastic spoon and write something on it. I don't know how many chilies are entered, but not everything is good, but if we see it as an adventure of good things and bad things, but we, we are guaranteed that it's going to end well. That is our challenge to believe and to live like it all is going to end well. How would we live if we were guaranteed it was going to end well? What would you do if you were guaranteed you could not fail? That's what this verse says, that God is putting together 
whoops, the verse went away. Let's go back to it. That God is working everything together for the good. And now notice this next part, for those who love God. Now, like, oh, yeah, we love God. Sure. Here's the challenge. More than money, more than pleasure, more than demanding everything always go the way we want it to go. Do we love God because God is God? If God is truly the creator of the universe and creator of us, then God deserves to be number one in our life. Do we always get it right? No. But to have our actions match up to what we believe, to have discipline and deny ourselves some things that aren't best for us. How do we know it ends well? Called by God. Called according to his purpose for them. Phone calls are a mixed bag these days. Can I get an amen? The whole idea of calling used to be really special. And now it's not. Between the robocalls and, and the rest, calling isn't that great. I find, I was paying attention this week, and when the phone rang, most of the time it was somebody giving me bad news. Or it was my wife saying, do you have your notifications off? You didn't answer my text. Those are the two primary phone calls I get, I noticed this week. I had one old friend that called me just to chat, and I spent the first five minutes talking to him about that doesn't happen enough that people call just to chat. And he said, well, I only had 10 minutes to chat, but it was good to catch up, so... I'll try a different approach next time. So we're going to try to redeem that word called. The idea is that God calls us and the appropriate association, do we answer? God calls us to this life by putting us here and by giving us a specific gift. Some of you have more than one gift. Some of us are thankful we have the gift. I like people. That's pretty much my gift in a nutshell. We don't want to panic, but we want to be motivated to spend now till Easter. Are we answering God's call on our life? What are we here for? Well, if you're here, God means for you to be here. Why is it worth our time to answer the call of God? Because God created us on purpose. God has plans for us. Bigger plans than we can imagine. We often think, oh, no, if I do it God's way, life's not going to be any fun. And the promise is the opposite. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be an adventure. It's a mission should we choose to accept it. The, uh, the old Jewish idea is there's no real word for retirement. We can pull back from our vocation. We can retire from our vocation. But still being a productive member of our community and serving others with our God-given gifts there's an old Jewish thought that might be alarming to you, but the moment we stop serving others with our gift is the moment we're no longer needed here. And zoop, we get to go see just how great heaven is. That if you want to stay here, continue serving others with a joyful attitude. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord, send me. How do we serve others? Well, this one kind of revolutionary, might really blow your mind, but we could pay attention and ask them, right? There's a thought. I mean, just think of the number of times you ask someone, how can I help you? And the answer is pretty rare, pretty rare. But on occasion, it might be really helpful if we said to those we care about, hey, how, 
how can I help? What would you like me to do? And first, they'll be suspicious. Can I get an amen? Be like, why? What are you after? What do you want from me? Well, I have a list, but first of all, I'm asking, how can I help you? I was 28 years old before I accepted the call to be a minister. I felt called to be a minister before then, but I didn't want to do it because I wanted to enjoy my life, and I didn't think it was possible to be a minister and enjoy my life. I was wrong. I've been doing this almost 30 years, and I do enjoy it immensely. But first, I played baseball until the whole talent thing became an issue. And then, pretty early on, actually, and then, uh, then I went into radio and did well in radio. Um, I, did, I, I did well in radio. I, I paid for a nice apartment with a nice view. And one night, I'm sure I'd been out with friends or working or whatever, and it was late. And right before bed, I would pray like, like you do. I was at the, at the time, I was the only Christian in the state of New York. So, you know, I took my prayer time seriously. And uh, so I knelt down before my, my front of my big window. We look out over everything. It was cool. And I, I prayed this crazy prayer. Lord, whatever you want. Whatever you want. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was a disturbingly clear voice. And, and first the voice said, either follow me or stop calling yourself a follower of me. And I didn't care for that, if I'm honest, because everybody that I knew, if you want to know what a Christian is, right there. There's Ted. That's, that's what a Christian does right there. So can I just tell you the freedom that comes with that, the lack of accountability and uh, boundaries? It was, uh, it was a great time, limited accountability, and then I felt the follow-up, which is, if you're really going to follow me, you should be in seminary. I've called you to be a minister, called you to be a minister. So go get all the, the education, the practice, the training, so you can go be a minister in my name. And I, I, to be honest, I didn't care for that either. But I had just prayed, whatever you want me to do, Lord. And first I heard either follow me or stop calling yourself a follower of me, which is I'm just going to give God the, the thumbs up on that. That was a fair point. I'm just going to say, in hindsight, looking back, I think God was 100% right on that one. My sister uh, was here this last week and her husband. And every time she said to my three kids, let me tell you a story about your dad when he was younger, just flooded with panic. Before I took my brand new wife back to meet everybody in New York, I spent six months telling her every single story I could think of because these are New Yorkers and I knew they were happy to tell her every story they could think of and they weren't going to put any polish on it to make me look good. So I felt like my working theory was if I tell it first from my perspective that it'll, it, it'll be better, it'll be better. Because I knew the story at the time I had to talk. To, I had to go apologize to the police chief of Utica, New York, at a public event. I knew that was going to come up. And I knew the time that I offended Charles Koch on the radio while he was listening to the station he was financially supporting. I knew that would come up. And if you ever talk to Charles Koch, he won't remember my name. But if you use this phrase, my baby, my baby, please don't take my baby, he will know what you are talking about to this day. So I knew all of those things, and many more were going to come up. I told my Long Island sister-in-law, she's from Long Island, New York, what low standards are we dealing with here? And I said, I feel called, I'm going to go be a minister, 
And, and she stopped what she was doing. I still remember this. She looked at me and she said, well, this is a big change for you, isn't it? Well, you don't have to say it out loud. So I was called to be a minister. I feel called to be a minister, but you, I'm not called to a vocation for eternity. In 10 years, I get to retire and go chase around grandkids wherever they are. Jenny and I will be doing what some of you do. Wherever the grandkids are, that's where we'll be. But I'm called to be a child of God into eternity. So we are called. Will we accept the call? We are currently here to solve problems for a prophet. It sounds crazy, but God gave us gifts. And the more effective we are using those gifts to solve problems for people around us, the more profitable those gifts will be for us. But that's not all we're here for. We're here to develop the appropriate relationships. How can I help you? Just, just some gas today, thanks. How can I help you? One person, it's a lifetime commitment, or at least one at a time. It's a lifetime commitment to help each other. For your children, when they're little, that's a big call. As they get older, it's a different call, and it's less time-consuming and more mentally straining, I've been assured. We are called to be in relationship with our Creator and those around us, intentionally living this big life that God gave us. If we ever feel our life is meaningless or is off track or we're not sure, focus on what are you good at? Are you doing that effectively for those around us? It's a really good place to start. And we'll always remember that it comes from our Creator. The verse said, God calls us. Before we were born, the Old Testament says, God knit us together in our mother's womb. And this has been a, a, long press, a long process. It continues to be a process. It continues on into eternity. If you ever think heaven might be just boring playing harp on a cloud, and you think, I don't even know how to play a harp, it's not. It's not what heaven is. It's spending eternity becoming more of who we were created to be as part of God. Yeah, this is going to take eternity. And so here's one we're going we're gonna to cover. My sins and mistakes up to this point may disqualify me. I stand before you suggesting that's not probably true. I've never killed anybody, but, you know, there were some choices made in my younger days that uh, I, will not be, I will not be telling you. I had to tell Jenny because uh, it was moments before all of my family and friends who loved me were going to be telling her. So, I think it was the 12-year-old niece who said to Jenny, Amy was our favorite. I've never talked to that kid again. Come from a big family, there's no need to. You say, my sins and mistakes may disqualify me. And the beauty of the system is what you have done or what you've been doing is not bigger than Jesus dying on that Roman cross. If the God of the universe is willing to come down and wear a bathrobe and sandals and live for 33 years in the middle of the dust of the Roman Empire and end up dead on a Roman cross, there's nothing more that any one of us can do that's worse than that. Moses was pretty popular in the Old Testament. It took several people a long time. Jesus had to actually go through death and resurrection before 
a huge number of population believed Jesus was more important than Moses. And Moses had killed a guy with his bare hands. And still, God called Moses to be part of the kingdom of God and to lead people. There were some things in your past that you would say, I think I've been disqualified. And the answer is no. There's a level of uh, arrogance that would come from, I can't be forgiven. There's a huge level of humility that I can assure you is tougher than you think to say, I was wrong, I'd like to be forgiven and follow Jesus. To do the things. Now, I have a 15-year-old son and my wife in this room. I'm not going to declare my perfection. That would not fly. But I'm pretty good. I'm not bad. I'm getting better. But what makes me worthy of the throne room of God is Jesus. So Jesus actually had to go to the cross and die because of all the nonsense that we try to pull all the time, continue to do. That's why Jesus died. There's nothing you're going to do that I'm going to do that's worse than that. It's more suffering than that for all the damage we've done for our, our sins. Okay, so now we got that covered. And then Jesus came back to life because he didn't stay dead. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't all there is. There will be a day we get to go to heaven. Between now and dead, how do we want to live? How about according to God's purpose? Everything, when we live our life according to God's purpose, gets knitted together in this most remarkable way so that it's good. Huh. Will there still be consequences to our actions? I can assure you, yes. Just think you have a bad day, and then you have to go back, and you have to apologize to some people, and then you know, this happens in your house. One person's grumpy. Everybody else deals with it for a while. After a while, you get tired of it, and the grumpy person comes around. They're feeling better now, and now everybody else is grumpy. At our house, we just stop, and we go to sugar. We go right to sugar. What's the opposite of anti-sugar? That's us at our house. Somebody's grumpy, we just put a load of sugar in front of them. We have one of our kids, you know, the kid's not doing that great. When I just see him go over to the, the white sugar with a spoon, then he's better. Well, I said he, that might give an indication of what I'm talking about. <laughs> there are times you just need a little boost. Sometimes you need a nap. But we have profound consequences on other people, the way we behave. And sometimes those consequences aren't good. There are still the consequences. I had some crazy stuff happen a few, several years ago. No, thankfully, several years ago now. It took me years to pray through the bitterness. Now I don't pray for them to burn in hell. It's not my choice. If it happens, I'm out. And it was strange. I got some, some emails and a couple of phone calls of apology for being part of the whole thing. Okay, well... It was my response. Well, did you tell everybody else that you were the problem? It's like, nope, just telling you. Have you ever heard that story where there's this hotline for the IRS and you can call and anonymously, you know, pay your back taxes? And they got a letter one time that said, here's $5 for the back taxes I owe. If I still feel guilty, I'll send you the rest. Right? Have you ever heard that? Well, that's what this felt like. No, no, my conscience was really bothering me, so I'm just apologizing to you, acknowledging to you that I was you know, part of the crazy. Well, did you tell everybody else? Now, 
felt like they should say, but if my conscience keeps bothering me, I'll mention it to him. There are consequences. I cause consequences. I suffer consequences from the bad choices of others. There may be consequences, but we're not disqualified, and there's not the eternal death penalty. So the short answer to the question, if, if the God of heaven loves us infinitely and wants the best for us, and heaven is a better place for us, then why are we here? The short answer is to be partners with God. In the beginning point, better than a credit card, is forgiveness. So we want to love ourselves enough to accept God's forgiveness. Somebody hands you something and you don't accept it, you've just insulted them. My dad would say, anybody offers you anything, take it. You can always throw it away later. Now there's practical wisdom you can use right there. It's offered by God, but we have to accept it. It's not automatic. We want to love ourselves enough. Remember, Jesus said love others as we love ourselves. It means we have to love ourselves enough to, for, to accept forgiveness. It means we have to love ourselves enough to put some discipline in our lives so that we can make better choices. It means we have to love others enough, once we've accepted forgiveness, to forgive others. I don't care for this part of forgiveness. But if I'm going to be honest and accept the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross, then I have to be much more free in extending it to others. Does that mean I still have to be around them? No. But to work to let go of bitterness, rage, anger, praying for their eternal destruction, to let that go. Does that mean you still invite them over for dinner? No. That'd be dumb. You don't trust them. Stay away from them. Limit your contact with them. Maybe they're not capable. Maybe love for you is acknowledging that someone isn't capable of being in a relationship with you, so don't put them in that situation. Stay away. But if we've been called to follow Jesus or stop calling ourselves a follower of Jesus, we've been called to forgive. So from now until Easter... With unusual focus, we are going to be doing 40 Days of Purpose. Your book is in the lobby. See, what do we have? 11.05. Okay, let's do communion. So Chicago Jeff and Boston Lou are going to hand these out. I wouldn't give them any lip. They're East Coasters at heart, right? Okay, so they're going to hand these out. If you, if you want a communion cup, the bread and the, and the juice are, are in there. You don't have to take one. But there's this incredible story in the Bible about forgiveness, where Jesus knew that he was going to be nailed to a Roman cross. If you've just hit your finger with a hammer while nailing, you know how painful that is. Well, now we've got to up it up a little bit. Ooh, a nail, big chunky nail, not sterilized, right through the hand, maybe, maybe through this part. And then through the feet, and hung on the cross. We call it Good Friday. Wasn't good for Jesus. It's good for us. And Jesus knew that was coming. He knew he was going to be whipped, tortured ahead of time. If you want to see it, you can. That movie Mel Gibson uh, sobered up for and made The Passion of the Christ. You can watch it. I've watched it once when it came out. I'm good. I've got it seared in my mind. I don't need to see it again. But the reason Jesus was willing to go through that was because forgiveness is serious. Sin is serious. Sin leads to death. 
The only way that's going to be reversed is if the ultimate death happens and it shows it's not the end. Okay. So the night before that was going to happen, I don't know what you're currently dreading most in life, a doctor's appointment, a family visit. I don't know. I don't know what you got dreading. A phone call you have to make, something you have to do at work, conversation you have to have with someone. But the night before those big events, we tend not to sleep well. Well, Jesus knew what was coming. Hey, Lou, toss one of those to me. Lou, uh, Lou's a Red Sox fan and just insulted my baseball abilities because I'm a Yankees fan, and I respect that. I appreciate that. In the middle of a touching conversation about forgiveness reminds me I have to forgive Red Sox fans. Jesus was willing to die for us because we need it. It is serious. The night before, he knew what was coming. So not surprisingly, Jesus didn't sleep. Jesus didn't sleep. The night before, he was going to be murdered by the Romans. He didn't sleep. There's a whole page after page of it. So at one point, he was with his friends, and they were in this upper room, and they were celebrating the Passover, which goes way back to the time of Moses where the angel of death passed over God's people and beat up the bullies, the Egyptians who were keeping them as slaves. God worked with them. They wouldn't take the signs, and so God got very serious. The angel of death got them, passed over God's people. So now, all these thousand years later, they were sitting in an upper room, and they were celebrating the Passover with their rabbi Jesus, Matthew and Mark and John and Except Jesus hijacked the Passover, and he knew what was coming. And so he told him what's going to come. And Peter said, ah, I'm willing to face death for you. And Jesus said, well, actually, if you want to know, you're actually going to deny you even know me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. Peter was offended. That's exactly what happened. Jesus didn't sleep the night before. He, he went out with him and said, pray with me. But, you know, it's late. Ever try to pray at night? If you're having trouble sleeping, try praying. That'll probably do it. <clears throat> they all fell asleep. Jesus comes back. He's pouring out of his heart to the Heavenly Father. You know what Jesus said? Hey, I don't really want to do this. I know what's coming. I don't want to do this. But if this is still what's necessary, I am willing to do it out of love for all of the sins of all the people that we have created who want to be forgiven? And the answer was, there's no other way. So then Jesus goes back to his friends, and they're asleep, and he says, well, you can't even pray for an hour? And they went, an hour? That's forever. No, I can't pray. No, they didn't say that. They felt bad because Jesus asked them to pray, and they fell asleep. Then they come, and the soldiers, and they get Jesus, and they take him away, and they beat him up, and they nail him to the cross. Jesus knew all that was coming. And he sat down with his friends for the Passover. And he said, he waited for everybody. I'm still going to eat it. He waited for everybody around the table who wanted to, to take some, some bread. It's just normal bread. It's just table bread. That's what we have here. We have a wafer. And Jesus said, everybody who wants this, this is my body broken for you, for your sins. Take it and eat.
Then uh, it was the Roman Empire, and while those aqueducts were impressive, there was a little challenge with drinking water. So it was table wine that they used. You know, Italians, right? So it was table wine. This is grape juice because we're all getting in the car. And Jesus said, after everybody had their normal table wine, he took just this normal everyday stuff and he made it profound like he does with our life. And Jesus said, this is my blood's build for you. Now, they're sitting around the table and nobody's bleeding. They think they're there for Passover. And Jesus said, this is my blood spilled for you. So you take that sin that you question if it can be forgiven. Maybe you take somebody else's sin that needs to be forgiven by you. And you put it on the tip of your tongue. And you take this blood of Jesus and you wash it away. Then they went out to the Mount of Olives and they, they sung, waiting for Jesus, went away for prayer and there was the soldiers that came and Peter denied him three times. The rooster crowed. The craziest part of all of it from his dearest friends, the craziest part of all of it is when Easter happened. Jesus said, I'll be back in three days and nobody was around the tomb. Shouldn't they have been all around the tomb? Do we believe this or not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would love to believe in the forgiveness of sins. We would love to live as if this life not only is not all there is, but we can't fail in this life. We would love to live as a child of God, but we are sinners saved by grace, and we get this wrong all the time. Would you meet us here in this place? Would you inspire us as we read through the book that Rick Warren wrote, as we read the Bible verses, as he puts them together in, in an amazing way? Would you give us a light on our life of why we're here, of who you call us to be, what forgiveness feels like, what forgiveness acts like? Lord, meet us here in this place. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that ABC approach to the relationship with you. A is to admit we're sinners. B is to believe that Jesus is the one who died for our sins and makes us worthy of God. And C is to choose to embrace being a child of God each and every day. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, amen.